It's Wednesday, May 13th. Welcome to Market Forward. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today for Million Dollar Portfolio, Simon Erickson and Jason Moser. Happy Wednesday, gents. Happy Wednesday, indeed. Hey, Chris. Uh, we're going to talk real estate. We're going to talk biotech. We're going to dip into the mailbag, but let's start with a little company called American Express. Uh, shares up a little bit today. They're raising their quarterly dividend. They're buying back 150 million shares of stock. This seems fine to me because, well, it's the first bit of non-negative news American Express has had in a while. I mean, it's it's funny because just from a consumer standpoint, this is a company that their their brand, to me anyway, has been intact for a very long time. It has been in very good shape for a long time from a brand standpoint. The whole membership has its privileges and all that sort of thing. You you start to dig into the business and you look at the stock. The company's been struggling a little bit lately, and of course, the biggest, highest profile struggle, JMO, is the ending of the exclusive partnership with Costco, and how that business moved over to Visa. And like I said, if nothing else. This is at least a, a somewhat positive bit of news for Amex and its shareholders. <laughs> it's good because it's not bad, right? Exactly. <laughs> uh, no, I, th- I think you, you keyed in on a lot of good points there. I mean, it, it's done a wonderful job over the course of of time, really protecting and nurturing that brand. I mean, the brand does stand for something, um, and you know, the membership has its privileges thing. I mean, they, they've. For the most part, I think there there is something to that. I mean, I'm I'm an American Express card user, and and it certainly is. I've always been very happy with it. I mean, there's never been any issues. Um, you know, I, I would have sometimes, you know, with a bank credit card where you know they would shut it down for whatever reason because of fraud concerns. I mean, American Express is a very high touch customer service sort of uh, of of company, and I, and I like that. But but to your point about the the performance of the stock, I mean, yeah, it's it's not. Done really well for investors at all. I mean, I think it gets a lot of, it gets a lot of uh, sort of play because you know, I mean, it's one of Buffett's big four. Obviously, he's held on to these shares for a very long time, uh, so he was actually you know able to, to to you know take part in a lot of this company's growth. Looking forward, I think that growth that growth becomes a little bit more nebulous. So, yeah, this is something where this is a result of the stress test. I mean, the, the company's been deemed healthy enough with capital ratios that satisfy uh, requirements so that they can, you know, make these make these uh, buybacks available, raise the dividend up a little bit. The share count's down about fifteen percent since two thousand and ten. So they've done a good job buying back those shares. You know, I was looking at the income statement there. Their payout ratio. Is twenty percent, and that's essentially just telling telling us if they can afford to pay the dividend. And so, I mean, the higher that payout ratio is, the more you have to kind of keep an eye on that. But at twenty percent, that's pretty low, especially when you consider their dividend. The yield is only about one and a half percent. Actually, it's not even that; it's one point three percent. And and so when I, I see that, I'm like, man, that just if one point three percent, mean, give your shareholders a break, bump that dividend up a little bit more, maybe. Um, the buybacks are fine. I mean, that'll be a way for them to. Artificially boost EPS as well, and it's not like they're the only ones to do that. And and you know maybe that earnings growth could afford it a little bit of a higher multiple, and maybe shareholders realize that through an appreciated stock price. But but you know dividends are cash in the pocket, and, and so I'd, I'd love to see them bring that yield up to you know something like three percent, become a little bit more competitive. Uh, because as you as you noted, I mean you look at the chart here, the chart doesn't lie. I mean you look at the last ten years, it's losing to the market. Five years, it's about even. 
three years, losing to the market. One year, losing to the market. Year to date, guess what? Losing to the friggin' <laughs> market. So, I mean, they, they need to figure out a way to reward shareholders, I think, a little bit more appropriately. And to me, um, a, a bigger boost to the dividend would be that. Well, and, and Simon, we've talked about this before. There are plenty of dumb ways for a company to spend their money. And so, boosting the dividend, buying back shares, that's not, you know, that, that is a material way to return capital to shareholders, um, assuming you can time the buyback correctly. Not everybody does that. But, you know, there, there are worse ways for Amex to spend its money. But I see stuff like this, and I'm, I'm always struck by just how uninspiring it is. <laughs> it's not that they're methodically growing their business, it's just like, well, this is the best idea we had at the time. I agree. This is a financially engineered company. You know, you put the equation together, is it a stock buyback, is it a dividend? It's, it's a capital allocation story, in my mind. Let's move on to Zillow, which reported a loss in the first quarter. I believe revenue came in lower than analysts were expecting, Simon, uh, but I actually saw conflicting reports on that. But Frankly, that's why you're in the room. You looked at this a whole lot more closely than I did. We'll get to sort of where Zillow is going in a minute, but first, what did you think of the quarter? What stood out to you? Well, the the first thing that really stands out is that we've now got Trulia fully acquired within Zillow. You know, they made the acquisition closed in February, so we're kind of looking at a, at a more consolidated company now. They're reporting pro forma, which is kind of maybe a split in some of the metrics we're looking at. But I, th- I think the first thing that really stands out to me is there's a lot more traffic going to the site now. Um, when you combine two, two websites, which will still run separately, but they're now all within the Zillow Group um, um, ownership, they've got 119 million combined monthly active users. That's up from 77 million that Zillow was attracting by themselves last quarter. So there's a whole lot more people going to the website, which is great. Uh, because you think about how Zillow monetizes, they're, they're monetizing this from real estate agents that are advertising on the site. When you have a larger pool of people, uh, you can you can increase your rates that you're charging, and we're also seeing the the premier agents that they have spending more on the site over time. So a little bit harder of a, of a quarter to grasp and get around the numbers, but I think that the metrics that we're looking that are important um, are looking pretty good. Uh, Jason, uh, I I don't often go through conference call transcripts, um, but I did in this case, and a couple of things stood out. First, I was reminded of why I don't really go through conference calls <laughs> transcripts, because so many of the questions from the analysts, and they're just doing their jobs, but so many of the questions are so in the weeds in terms of... Uh, Fill out self E4 on my Excel <laughs> spreadsheet. Yeah, it's, it's basically, help me understand this yeah. one number, uh, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but, but a couple other things stood out. First, they take questions from Twitter. I, I, yes. just, I just think yeah. that's a smart move, and that—that's—I'm not saying that does anything materially for Twitter's business, but I just think from a company standpoint, that's smart of Spencer Raskoff, the CEO, and his team to say, "Yeah, we're going to have analysts on the call, but we're also going to take questions from Twitter, and and obviously they get to pick the questions that they they take there." So I think that's smart. But one of the things that struck me was the very first question right out of the gate had to do with ad spending, and. When you think about Zillow and its position as the market leader in its space, you know it's not like as we've talked about before. If you're if you're the head of marketing for Coca-Cola or Kraft Foods or some big huge consumer brand, some behemoth of a company, you're you almost can't go wrong in terms of how you spend your money. If you're a company like Zillow, you got to be very careful about your and and when I say very careful, I don't mean Boy, you have to watch every penny, but you do. You do have to. Um, 
you really have to make it count because on the one hand, you you do want to invest in promotion, in advertising, grow your brand, all that sort of thing. And I've said before, I think the the television ads that they do are 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 pitch perfect in in terms of what they're trying to convey. But I do feel like if and I'm not a shareholder, but I feel like that's something that I think bears watching because this is this is not a company that can really afford to overspend on advertising. No, they can't. And I mean, to your point there about uh, them taking questions on Twitter, um, it was a couple of years ago, Matty Argersinger and I were able to interview Spencer Raskoff just after the earnings released one quarter. And then, uh, after that, we were able to uh, help him moderate a, the Q&A on Twitter after the call was done. And that was a lot of fun for a lot of reasons. But I think that you know when you look at companies like Zillow, these these young internet businesses that are now you know the big difference between today's internet business and, and the one the ones of nineteen you know ninety nine are that we we have this social media dynamic in play now. And and so I think that from from that perspective, it's a I think it's it's brilliant for Spencer to to do that because number one. It just it brings more people into the mix. It just it adds more transparency. It brings out some really interesting questions, but but it keeps it keeps Zillow. I think it just keeps them them as as a relevant brand. It gets that brand awareness out there from a number of different perspectives. It's, it's almost like free advertising. All it's costing him really is his time. Because to your point, they can't just go throw ad dollars and just say, "Well, we're just going to create awareness and boom, everything's done." They've got to be very careful about the money that they invest because they're so young, because they're so new, um, and, and because there are certainly some questions up there as to to how sustainable you know the model is, how much return. Uh, you know, are are agents finding from from being on that Zillow platform? And I think those numbers are bearing out as time goes on. But but yeah, they have to be very very careful about that at this stage in their uh, development. Earlier this year, Simon Spencer Raskoff uh, was very clear that 2015 was going to be a transition year for them, and obviously, getting the Truly acquisition completed, getting everything. Uh, folded into Zillow from a corporate standpoint, that, that makes a lot of sense. Since we are closing in on the halfway point of 2015, what should we be watching now with this business? It's not to you know, I I, I always like it when when CEOs um, are, for lack of a better term, clear-eyed about their business, and and Raskoff strikes me as that type of person who's just you know, not that he's. You know, playing possum or anything, but he's just saying, "Hey, look, we're we're a growing company. We just completed this acquisition. This is going to take some time to sort out. So bear with us. Bear with us in 2015. But what should we be watching?" Yeah, two things I think are really important for investors to pay attention to. The first is the operating metric that matters, which is the average revenue per advertising agent. Want to make sure that Zillow's scaling this business over time, and to do that, the people that are already on the platform that are advertising are spending more money. Um, average revenue per agent was three hundred and fifty-four dollars this quarter. Um, that's up twenty-four percent year over year, so that's good. And I think we continue to watch that. That's the first thing. And the second thing that I'm interested in that they're really doing a good job with is making sure that Zillow's got the best data out there. Uh, if you want Zillow to have credibility in the market, and if you want these advertising agents to say, "Yeah, we want to we want to pay money to advertise on Zillow," you've got to have everything updated all the time. And they're doing that through what they're calling the Zillow Partnership Platform. They team up with uh, MLS listings for for different regions, and it directly feeds Zillow with the most updated information on all of the listings every 15 minutes. Uh, they've signed 235 new MLSs this year alone. 
And that's, I think, crucial to, to the value you're bringing out there is you have to have the best data. And, and I think that's the way that we can assess that. So both metrics for me looking really good. Transitional year, yes, but growing the business for the long term also. Vertex Pharmaceuticals shares up today after an FDA panel gave uh, the thumbs up to the combination cystic fibrosis therapy that Vertex has developed. Uh, Obviously, Jason, they still need the final approval from the FDA, but if if history is any guide in this matter, uh, it's looking pretty good for that. it, you certainly have to be encouraged if you're a, a Vertex shareholder. Yeah, we've got a nice amalgam of uh, companies to talk about. <laughs> yeah. Real estate, finance, biofarm, all this good stuff. Man, this is fun. Um, yeah, I, this is a very big win for Vertex, and I, I don't really want to. I don't think you can overstate that at this point. It's not an FDA ruling, um, but but one the backing of, of a panel of independent medical experts, which sets itself up for the FDA ruling that's coming on July 5th, and in most cases. Not all, but in most, they tend to follow the recommendations of those panels. Um, but just to give a little bit of a backstory here, Vertex was a leader in the field of HIV and hepatitis treatment. And then Gilead Sciences, which is just a beast in this industry, basically displaced them, just completely disrupted them, and kind of sent them back to square one. So Vertex uh, did wonderfully in coming up with treatments for cystic fibrosis, uh, which is a genetic dis- disorder. It's, it's fairly rare. Um, but, you know, it affects about 30,000 children and uh, adults in the U.S. and about 70,000 worldwide. Uh, what they've been doing for the longest time was treating patients with a drug called Kaleidico. All right. And, and so, all of Vertex's business is based on this cystic fibrosis treatment. I mean, if, it, if this goes in the tank, this business is basically done. What they had been testing in, in, uh, in conjunction with Kaleidico was combining it with another uh, drug called Lumicaftor. And, and that's what this is. This is, this is basically looking at the, the combination treatment here to see if it's something that'll work. And, and what it does is they've had for the longest time just treatments for the symptoms of this disease, but not really the treatments for the cause of the disease. And in this combination of drugs, the goal is to treat more the cause of the of the disease. And and that's what it looks like is is uh, you know being received optimistically here. Again, you have to wait and kind of see how that all shakes out. Uh, but but for sure, their business is solely dependent on at least you know for now that, that cystic fibrosis market. And so it's it's imperative that they're able to to make some positive steps here in the coming. Uh, months with the FDA uh, to keep this ball rolling because if not, then I mean the market's the market is certainly pricing you know this stock today as if it's going to be successful. If it's not, it could be brutal. But you know, I, I, I like their chances based on what I've read. Well, if it is successful, I saw one analyst note that said, uh, and again, this is just one analyst, but um, one analyst saying, look, they get this through. They could be doing five billion dollars in sales annually. Yeah, that's wow. a, that's a pretty massive number when you consider the market cap of Vertex is you know <laughs> is like what thirty thirty billion yeah something like, something like that. It's, I mean, it's close to thirty. I, I mean, if they're doing if they're able to pull that off, that's going to be. I mean, I get that the market's pricing in right now, but well, if they, I don't it, think they're. <laughs> No, I, I don't mean, know that it doesn't look like the market is pricing in the possibility of five billion dollars in annual sales off of this one treatment. No, and to be sure, I mean the stock isn't really going nuts today because again, I think it was an interesting sort of ruling here in that the overwhelming majority of this panel voted in favor of the safety of the drug, but there were some questions as to the efficacy of it, and there were six of the thirteen or fourteen on the panel that 
said they just needed more information, and then and then the others were split basically half and half, and so that that's kind of where the question comes into play there. Um, it remains to be seen. You know, I've, I've watched these FDA things play out for you know years now, and you, you just never know. But again, I think that the panel today, I think that bodes well for uh, for July, and and if they if they do indeed get that FDA approval in July, then. You know, I foresee the market receiving that news very well. We've got a lot of rule breaker um, biotechs on the scorecard, also, and I think that the market typically kind of splits the difference for for companies that are in the. Or I'm sorry, for drugs that are in the pipeline. You know, there's normally some kind of um, expectation factored into the market cap for smaller companies like this that there will be success, but you're never going to give it for 100 percent of peak sales factored into that just because something could go wrong. So it's interesting looking at companies like that. Radio at fool.com is our email address. And an email from Jason Hussey, listener number 3.14159. He writes, Thanks for the great podcast. I've been listening to Market Foolery and Motley Fool Money for almost a year now, and I'm loving it. I signed up for Stock Advisor, and I am now the proud owner of Disney, Priceline, Apple, and Activision Blizzard. Uh, my question is about the concept of buy and hold forever. I hear this from people on the show. A lot of times the comment is something along the lines of, I plan to hold this indefinitely, or I'd be X amount richer if I had never sold a single stock. If you hold forever and never actually sell the stock, how do you actually realize any of your gains? Is this just an idiom that gets tossed around? Don't you actually have to sell that stock to do something with the gains? Thanks for the awesome content. I'll be at Fort Belvoir this fall, and I'm excited to check out Alexandria. Hey, come on by, by all means. yeah, Simon. I mean, when we say this is one I'd hold forever, you know, to Jason's point, you, you got to actually sell the stock to <laughs> to realize the gains, right? Um, but I think it does. I think it is, you know, one of those phrases that does speak to sort of, you know, an individual's conviction around something. Um, with that in mind, if I, if in fact you you did have to hold it forever. What what is one stock you would be willing to hold forever? Well, Chris, we've got sealed envelope coming into this podcast. It'll be <laughs> interesting if we, if we mention the same stock, because I think there's a handful we probably talk about. But the one that I would hold forever is is Johnson and Johnson. I, I would say J and J is my hold forever. I think healthcare is around to stay. We're always going to need this in the future. You know, whatever generation we are, you're going to need advances in not only you know the consumer brands we're, we're more familiar with. But pharmaceutical development, medical devices, and J and J is so diversified. They've got 265 different operating companies within this behemoth, almost 300 billion dollar market cap of a company. And then on top of that, you know, if this is something you're going to hold forever, maybe you pass it on to your kids. You know, for future generations, it also helps that they're paying out a dividend of almost three percent. Uh, they've historically, you know, grown that seven percent a year. You got to. A company that's that's in an industry that that is needed. You've got a diversified mix, and you've got a growing dividend. And that that kind of hits the checklist for me. You know, it's it's interesting when you mention Johnson and Johnson's market cap because we're start we're starting to see this story uh, play out a little bit more lately. And it's the idea of the trillion dollar company. What's going to be the first company to have a market cap of a trillion dollars? And Johnson and Johnson does not really make anyone's shortlist for that. But I think when you when you do consider everything you just said about sort of the methodical growth of that company, they're not going to be the first trillion dollar company, but they're probably going to be over the finish line before most other companies out there. Fair enough. And you know, as a disclaimer, I, I am a shareholder of Johnson Johnson. It's almost one that you can put in your portfolio and forget about for ten years and not lose sleep at night over. I have it uh, in my 
one of my daughter's portfolios, and uh, I, I can say, uh, just using myself as, as an example, I often forget that I own it. So, <laughs> um, Jason, what about you? Yeah, those were very thoughtful words. Uh, thanks for listening, Jason. And and I think that so for me, whenever I say I plan to hold it indefinitely, that's indefinitely as in just an unspecified amount of time. It doesn't mean forever, but it could mean forever. I guess you never know. I mean, I'd love to be able to pass some some holdings on to kids, but but I typically just mean well. And uh, sorry to interrupt, but to, to that point, I mean. I feel that way about some of the stocks that I own, and I think about it in term. I think of indefinitely in the way that David Gardner talks about. I'm holding this until something changes. Yeah, you know, if an unspecified amount. If if there's some sort of like significant change either to the business or sort of the reasons that I bought the stock, I'm I'm willing to sell it at some point. But something pretty big has to change. Yeah, no, that's 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 it in a nutshell. So I, you know, for me, there are, there are a few that I would I would consider, but I'm going to go with Walt Disney here. You know, I'm going to I'm going to go with Walt Disney. My my daughters own it in their portfolio, and you know, I, it's just when I think about this business and remember it so fondly as a child growing up, and then I, I get to witness my kids love it as they grow up. They, the the amount of of the properties that they have in this business that they continue to to acquire and grow and develop. I mean, it's just it's phenomenal to think about how big of a reach this business has and how many things they do that we probably run into on a daily basis, if not at least you know every other day. So I I really I really don't see that as being something that is. Displaced or disrupted, I, I feel like I'm gonna maybe one day be a grandfather and see my grandkids witnessing the magic of Disney as well. Um, it's it's not. I mean, it's a big company, 185 billion, but but I mean that doesn't that doesn't mean it can't continue to grow. And, and I think that uh, I think that it, I think that it will. So I'd put Disney in that in that in, on that short list. Uh, for me, it's Starbucks. Aha. Um, and and by the way, interesting that that uh, among the three of us, technology. <laughs> a, 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 a more of a technology company yeah. was mm-hmm. did not make the list for for any of us, but uh, no, uh, it's such a well-run company, and uh, I don't know what technology is going to look like in fifty years. I'm really, really confident that coffee is going to be here in fifty years. <laughs> I think it's so, a safe bet. So that's where we'll go from there. All right, Simon Erickson, Jason Moser, guys, thanks for being here. Thanks, thanks a lot. Chris. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. Show is mixed by Austin Morgan. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.